the Truth or Politics podcast, episode six, COVID-19 and vaccines. Well, I, I, I think the, um, the misinterpretation of um, herd immunity being applied uh, or being acquired through uh, infection of the general populace um, I have to admit that that struck me as uh, very Darwinian in the most frightening manner. <laughs> the truth will set you free. At least that's what I've been told. I said the truth will set you free. At least that's what I've been told. I've got misinformation on the left and right of me, and in the middle, a truth to behold. Okay, guys, so the, the discussion that we have today, just want to do a little disclaimer. My guests are here um, talking on their own. They are not representing their place of employment. Um, they are simply here to discuss what they um, have learned in their field of research and work, and uh, but they are not representing their university or their employer. Um, these are their own thoughts and discussions. But uh, So anyway, I just wanted to put that out there, and uh, we'll go from there. Hi, everybody. This is Robert with the Truth or Politics podcast. Today, I've got uh, two guests with me who both work in health department and university health fields, and they are going to add to our conversation, listen to some of the listener feedback with us. And uh, I've already discussed some things with them. They've taken some heavy notes. I think we might just do uh, a doctoral dissertation tonight on how much we've prepared for this podcast. That's a small joke, but we, you never know. But I just wanted to say a little bit about what we've seen for the numbers of COVID-19, and then we're going to get straight to our guests. So today, if we look at the COVID-19 numbers in the United States, it looks like we have 15.5 million cases and we have about 291,000 deaths. That just makes me feel weird inside even saying that. Um, worldwide, we're looking at 69.9 million cases and 1.5 million deaths. Um, we are recording from the great land of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And here in Kentucky, we have 217,000 cases, 2,387 deaths. Now, one other thing about this, when the first uh, COVID-19 case was found, it was roughly January 19th or 20th of 2019 in Washington State, and that was um, from a person who had been to Wuhan, Wuhan, China, and had come back to the States and developed um, COVID-19, and that was our first case, and um, there couple other things I wanted to read really quick, and we'll come back to these guys, but I wanted to just, now that I have it on here, I don't want, I don't want to forget saying it, we know that COVID-19, for, for, for ill or for good, has been compared to the flu, the influenza virus, 
And I did some CDC searching today, and I feel like sometimes I see things on social media where they say the comparison to the influenza virus to the COVID-19, and they, they make it seem like the influenza virus has such bigger numbers. Now, I know that um, the COVID-19 hasn't even run a full year, so that's always been on the back of my mind. But at the same time, I, th- I just think, where are they finding these numbers? Because it just doesn't seem to make any sense based on, Philip, I know you're the epidemiologist, but the little bit of epidemiology I've looked at, the numbers just don't generate that high from what I've seen of what the flu could do you know, compared to COVID-19. So anyway, it looks like in 2019 to 2020, we had 38 million cases of the flu. Uh, we had about 400,000 hospitalizations, and it looks like there was about 22,000 deaths. And that's coming straight from a CDC site uh, that I just found today. And just for the comparison's sake, 2018, we had 35.5 million cases, 490,600 hospitalizations, 34,000 deaths. And then my last one, 2017, there were 45 million cases, 810,000 hospitalizations, 61,000 deaths. So that is, you know, important and tragic in of its own. Um, you guys might not know that I did spend a couple years working as a, um, a neurodiagnostic technician, and I was in all the ICUs, the PICUs, the NICUs, and I had seen kids develop um, and, and adults develop the flu and pass away from it. So I know the seriousness of that, but it's almost like we are comparing apples and oranges, at least based on these numbers. Um, at least that's what I would say. And I'll have you guys chime in on some of that. But so I am joined by um, a, a couple of folks who who cohabitate, I think it's fair to say, if not even are married. Is that correct, guys? Are you married? Uh, yes, uh, two years now. Oh, fantastic. Okay. <laughs> Well, I am. I am here with. We're still married. Yes, good. Still, still married. Uh oh, Philip. <laughs> so I'm. I'm here with Philip and Sarvanchana, and they are going to introduce themselves and what they are currently doing. And I'm just going to turn it over to them. And uh, why don't we, Philip? Let's be gentlemen and let ladies go first. Yeah, you're right. We have, uh, I have seen so many people compare flu to COVID-19 since early March. Uh, I was working in the Norton ER during that time. Uh, and there were so many patients and even a couple of nurses who thought it was not as serious as flu, uh, COVID-19, because it's new. And that's something I still hear, even we are, uh, it's December now, it's been a couple of months, but that's some comparison I have noticed not only in social media, but also in uh, in-person conversations with people. Uh, and Philip and I discuss this often too, like why is this different than flu? Uh, the thing is, there are few uh, common things between flu and COVID-19. When it comes to symptoms, uh, there are the same symptoms like congestion, cold, uh, cold-like symptoms, cough, headache, fatigue. Uh, all of these are symptoms that we see with flu too. So that's one of the reasons uh, people keep saying, oh, it doesn't sound 
anything different than flu. Uh, but there are a few things that we should be concerned about COVID-19. The first thing being it's a novel virus. It's something our body is, is saying for the first time this year. Unlike flu, it's been a couple of centuries. Uh, our bodies, our immune system has seen it before and we have some herd immunity in place. Whereas COVID-19 is something new. Uh, and there are some differences between flu and COVID-19 too. Uh, one symptom that's uh, unique to COVID-19 is loss of smell and loss of taste. Uh, that's, uh, that's one thing that uh, is easy to know if it's COVID-19 or flu. But loss of smell or loss of taste is something that happens a few days after your infection begins. So the first few days people think the symptoms are, oh, it's allergies. And we live in Kentucky. Uh, there are so many allergies. We have, like I have spoken to so many people in the last few months during contact tracing, where people would be like, oh, it's just allergies. I always have allergies. And then they're the positive. Right. So, uh, so Ranjana, I'm so, going to interrupt you just for a second. Let's Let's back up. Tell the folks a little bit more about yourself and what you're doing at the university. So contact tracing you're certainly doing. Go, go into a little more detail about what you're doing at the, the, the university right now. Sure. Uh, so uh, I'm a PhD candidate at University of Louisville uh, in public health. My specialization is actually in environmental health science and I have a background in occupational safety. But as a public health student, uh, we are taught epidemiology uh, and, pub, uh, and environmental science. Uh, so this year, uh, when uh, the pandemic happened in March, I had the opportunity to volunteer with the health department uh, with contact tracing. They just started that in April. We were just getting things in place. Uh, so they needed help. and. I volunteered uh, and started contact tracing with Louisville Metro. And then after that, uh, I started to work through Lacuna, which did formal, con uh, which still does formal, formal contact tracing for uh, Greater Louisville. Uh, and then I started working for University of Louisville to start their own contact tracing program. Uh, uh, so I worked as uh, I worked as the lead contact tracer for the university for the last four months, uh, training uh, about seven students and um, uh, uh, an employee there to start a, to start the program to get the workflows in place to train them uh, because uh, the contact tracing efforts for the city is different than for the university. It's the same. Yeah, uh, yeah. The the needs are the way you work. It's a little different for the university. So we had to tweak and come up with a plan, and it was fun. I mean, it was interesting. Uh, so that that's what I did. Uh, uh, and then we, yeah, we started from uh, paper and a pen. I believe in early August, and then now we have a really robust system uh, within uh, a short time of. Uh, period and we have 12 students I think working about uh, some are working 20 hours some are working 30 hours um, and now currently I'm working as the contact tracing advisor or analyst 
which is analyzing the data we gathered and figuring out where the clusters are happening or uh, which department we should be more concerned about or uh, what activities the students are doing that we should be uh, focusing on. Good. I'm, uh, I'm going to stop you so, right there because I, I want to come back to that. Um, I really like the idea about zeroing in on certain clusters um, and, and with contact tracing and how you guys um, work your way uh, into getting those numbers and getting data and, and what you can um, learn from that. Philip, I'm going to bounce over to you now, and I want you to go ahead and introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you're doing um, at the health department, and you can say a little bit about your background also. Oh, sure. Um, well, my name's Philip. Um, I have my master's in public health uh, in epidemiology. I graduated from the University of Louisville. And as a response to the uh, growing uh, uh, crisis um, in, in Louisville, uh, I also volunteered at the Louisville Metro Public Health and Wellness Center, uh, where I took on the, the role as one of their case investigators. And that's kind of like how I learned uh, how to um, go about doing case investigation, uh, the steps you have to take, uh, what guidelines you need to follow. Um, and now I'm currently with the Spencer County Health Department, uh, uh, also uh, doing the position of case investigator. Uh, but I'm also taking on the role of being a contact tracer and also a case caller. So what that means is that I contact the... Uh, I, I contact positive cases. Um, uh, I verify what, what symptoms the, uh, they're experiencing, uh, if they're symptomatic, if they're asymptomatic. Um, I also uh, ask them questions uh, regarding uh, any close contacts that they have, either at home or at work. Um, and I also um, monitor their, their, their daily um, symptoms and temperatures, um, uh, usually by uh, texting them in the morning. And, and that way, the health department is able to monitor to make sure that they're doing okay. 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 Well, Cervantino, let's go back to you and um, talk about that, that cluster. And and I guess uh, maybe we should, you know, maybe we should come back and actually pick back up. I think you were talking about what COVID-19 is and the fact that it is a novel virus it's something we haven't seen before. Um, you mentioned some good buzzwords in there about herd immunity um, and then how we um, simply don't have the, the immune systems right now to be able to really fight this off as we would have if we had something like the flu hit us again, where we not only have herd immunity um, with the flu, let's say, but we also have the flu vaccine. So that's a whole other subject to come back on to with uh, everything that's happening right now. But why don't we go ahead, um, say a little bit about the clusters of what you're seeing. And this is at the University of Louisville. Is this just in the hospital? Is this at the school with clusters? Mm -hmm. is, is it everything? Uh, so uh, I, was just, I, I was just involved with, well, I'm just involved with University of Louisville School. Uh, so it's just the health science campus in downtown and the Belknap campus. Uh, so it's just the students who live on campus, who live off campus. It's the faculty who are teaching and the staff. Uh, 
and who work there. Uh, so talking about clusters, uh, well, uh, they, there are some clusters that happened in uh, athletes, uh, the football or the basketball. That's that's already in the news that uh, everybody probably is already aware of. Uh, I think it was uh, in late July that we uh, we had a lot of clusters in athletes, and that was attributed to students having parties and stuff, uh, and it was a, a kind of in news. Uh, so those were some big clusters we found in summer uh, and during uh, the last few months during the fall semester we did also find clusters in few specific departments or a uh, few uh, housing uh, areas compared to others uh, i can't go into the specifics uh, but some things that we did identify uh, where clusters happened was not during the class when students are in the classroom, uh, but it's usually outside of the classroom because when they are in the class, they are following the distance, uh, the distance, uh, the physical distance, are wearing a mask, and everyone is watching each other and careful. But it was after after the class when they're studying together doing homeworks together or socializing together that's when we found more uh, uh, cl clusters happen uh, there were few, uh, there, there are few peaks that we identified uh, and that we could trace back to okay they studied together or they had a birthday party together 15 people uh, 30 people i mean students do what students do uh, <laughs> How do but you, for the most part, uh, most students, yeah. How, how do you keep a straight face over the phone when people are telling you they got together for a birthday party? Knowing, uh, knowing what everyone knows, I mean, I, you know, as, as I, in my role at the hospital, all I do is check people in, take their temperature. Um, I'll call them before their appointments if they're doing their evaluations and find out, you know, if you've been exposed to it and go through those questions. But my goodness, if I spoke to someone who told me they were exposed because there were 15 of them in a room at a birthday party and they weren't masked and they weren't six feet apart, um, are you able to keep a straight face when you're doing that? I mean, do you have to have uh, a kind of a poker face and be very so. clinical? Yeah, sometimes it's hard. I mean, sometimes I think we do idols. But which I don't want the people to know, but uh, but I completely understand where that's coming from. Now, these are 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, or, you know, young adults. I don't think I'm 30, I'm 32 now. If, it, if the pandemic happened 10 years ago, I don't think I would have been following as strict precautions as I am right now. And also for these students, especially those that live on campus, that's their home. The, their roommates or friends, that's their family. It's uh, extremely hard to tell them not to socialize. Uh, but the best thing we can come up is make them aware. See, this is what can happen, but this is what you can do. This is what you should be doing. Uh, sometimes people take it. Sometimes it's hard. But the best thing we can do is just see where the hotspots are and uh, target them and make them aware or stop it from spreading. Right, so. right. Philip, when you hear about clusters and, and uh, you're in your role as an epidemiologist working with the health department, are you involved in any of, I guess, what I see 
are these um, modeling scenarios where you're making these predictions about how many people are going to be infected based on the rates um, that we're seeing of cases. Um, do you get involved with any of those types of things with the epidemiology? Where, where's, where's the science and, and what you do with, with that particular role? Uh, well, I, uh, I mostly do uh, data gathering. So, so most of the work that I do uh, involves uh, uh, gathering uh, information about positive cases uh, in Spencer County, um, how many people are getting sick, uh, uh, counting numbers on how many people, uh, how many new cases per day, uh, how many per week. Um, all of those, uh, all of those things are fitted into models that we do use to try and predict uh, the seed, like. Uh, are we going to need more resources? Uh, are we going to need any more people uh, to uh, to work contact tracing? Um, and also, and also, the priorities have to keep changing every week because uh, sometimes uh, things have to change a little bit. Um, sometimes you're not able to do uh, uh, even daily monitoring. Uh, instead, we have to. Uh, adjust to so that we're only taking symptoms uh, after ten days of initial symptom, or uh, or when the uh, uh, the day was uh, of, of their of their COVID nineteen test if they're asymptomatic, um, and the reason they do that is just because uh, of fluctuating numbers and trying to predict. Uh, this is where we have to uh, uh, start applying more strength in order to make sure that uh, we can get the numbers back down again. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I like, um, for me, hopefully the listeners too, but I like for me hearing you say that it's, it's a sort of a dynamic process and that you gather your numbers and, and those numbers then prepare you for what's coming ahead. And, and maybe you have to change your resources that are available or find new resources if it's PPE or if it's – now, did, did I never thought in my lifetime so many people in this world would know what PPE meant? Uh, at least when I you know, first started having to go into all the rooms when I was doing the neurodiagnostics, like, PPE, what's that? Well, you know, everybody in the world knows now. But, um, yeah, I, I like that there's that side of, of what you do. Um, it's sort of, you know, on the ground and, um, now it's, it's not all like now you'll have to forgive me cause I make a lot of movie references and everything that I do. And I have read the book too, but the world war Z novel, and then the follow up, uh, maybe the atrocity movie that they say was Brad Pitt's movie. Um, are you familiar at all with, with Mel Brooks's son, Max Brooks and his book world war Z and, you know, how they feel like he had sort of a um, unique approach when it came to uh, this whole pandemic. Are you familiar with that at all, either of you? Oh, well, Not obviously. Not me, I, but it sounds like yeah. Philip is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm familiar with the, with the novel, and, I'm, and I do remember seeing the trailers for the movie, but I never actually watched it because I did hear the reviews were oh, yeah. warm. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yes, the, but, the but reviews what, were not kind. <laughs> but, but one book that I did read that I thought was very illuminating, uh, mm -hmm. and this was years ago before the pandemic, uh, was when I read The Andromeda Strain by Michael Crichton. Sure, sure. Uh, which also deals with uh, uh, an emerging crisis and uh, how 
so many factors uh, can contribute to either uh, the crisis taking over and destroying everything or us being able to uh, persevere and go and move on. So mm-hmm. it was just... Uh, yeah, that's it. It's it, it does kind of blow my mind sometimes how uh, science fiction, let's just call it that, for these particular types of stories, um, can be predictors of you know future events. Um, whether it's you know really nerding out here with you know Star Trek and their little communicators looking like cell phones, you know, or if it's you know someone who, uh, at least in Max Brooks's case, um, he uh, actually was. Um, uh, I can't. Believe, I think he did go to West Point. I know at this point he is a guest lecturer at West Point because they feel like he has one of the most novel. Speaking of novel things, uh, perspectives when it comes to preparedness right now for these types of uh, pandemic events. But anyway, I got us completely off track by that. Sorry, guys. Um, so go ahead. Go ahead, Sarancha. You want to say something? Yeah, I just. Yeah, I just wanted to add something yeah. uh, to how data we collect helps in making decisions later. I just wanted to give you an example at the University of Louisville when we were doing contact tracing and collecting uh, the number of cases, right? Uh, every week we do analysis to see which department or where the clusters are happening. And uh, one example I can give you is we noticed that a specific housing, uh, a specific building or dorm where students were living, we had a higher number of cases. So uh, since we found that based on the data we collected, we were able to allocate resources by talking to the administration and get all the students tested the next next week so that we could catch all the asymptomatic cases sooner than later and stop the spread. Uh, so that's one way we can use data. And that's what uh, the, uh, the Kentucky Health Department has been doing too. Like uh, initially they figured nursing homes, long-term care facilities have to be treated differently or prisons or congregate settings, as we call. So that's why schools or nursing homes or detention centers, homeless shelters, they have different uh, guidelines than normal households. So again, that's all because of data. The data we gather helps us to make the right decisions, so evidence-based regulations. But that's why it keeps changing. Like when we say everything is so dynamic right now. So what we say today, the guidelines might change next week. And that's a good thing. Because the more we are learning, the more we are updating as ourselves. So yeah, I'm putting my I'm putting my hands in the air. I'm not a particular religious guy, but I'm going hallelujah. Because I mean, that to me is science. You know, I think Right now, people are getting hit over the head with the the stress of all this, and and then so frustrated that yet another um, finding is coming out, and we may have to tweak what we're doing. But to me, every time I hear that, I I see that as oh, thank goodness, we found something else. It's still being researched. We're in, but that that's just good science. 
where I think for a lot of people and, you know, my, my little truth or politics, st- um, you know, slant on all this, they want things to be wrapped up in kind of a neat bow and consistent. And, and when things change, it makes them upset and they want to blame people and, you know, all these things. But, you know, I, I am so happy about the dynamic nature of what goes on. I say that though, <laughs> and it's a little bit of a setup. The only issue I have had with the um, findings and what's come out through um, all the different people who've spoken about it, whether it's Dr. Burks or Dr. Fauci or, you know, things coming from the CDC, the, the first one that bothered me, and I think it might have been just a, a strategic move to protect PPE, but it was Dr. Fauci saying um, in, in the first time um, that we really didn't need to wear face masks out in public. And, and then I, I, can't, I don't know how quickly that changed. Might have been a week or two weeks after that. And they're like, yes, we need to wear face masks. Um, do you guys remember that moment um, at all when that first um, guideline kind of got, got thrown out there or that first suggestion? My favorite word is the word. The word. Isn't it a beautiful word when you think of it? It just covers everything. Word. <laughs> I know words. I have the best words. Words matter a lot. And I got the point across. Well, you have to go back in. Uh, you have to go back in time to uh, that earlier period, uh, uh, back in January, February, uh, back when there was a, a concern that uh, uh, more and more people were going to start getting sick, um, and uh, uh, we realized that uh, the stockpile for PPE in this country was uh, drastically low, uh, extremely low. Um, and there wouldn't have been enough at the time to accommodate uh, uh, putting a face mask on on everybody in the country at that time. Um, those those limited resources had to be focused on uh, the frontline uh, healthcare workers who would have to uh, face this virus uh, head on in the hospitals uh, and the researchers. Um, and of course. Uh, well, well, of course, uh, Dr. Fauci's decision to uh, uh, to go ahead and say that um, face masks weren't weren't necessary at the time uh, that also that also changed as we became more aware of how COVID nineteen is able to spread uh, through the air through droplets. Uh, there, there was a lot of uh, fear at the time that uh, that fomites were a uh, uh, a vector for uh, for acquiring COVID nineteen either through touching uh, surfaces that were contaminated or not properly sanitized, um, and there was all those questions about how long does it take uh, for uh, the virus to become inactive once it's on uh, uh, a surface. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but more and more research uh, does indicate that uh, close proximity with other people's uh, breathing in the same air, uh, uh, coughing, uh, sneezing, uh, things that carry uh, uh, the virus into the air 
is the is one of the most uh, primary ways for the uh, the virus to gain entry into uh, into a host. Um, so those all those uh, all those research more experience more more data collected all of those things uh, um, uh, uh, allow um, um, all those things can be amended once uh, once you know more about the. Uh, the situation, and you're able to make uh, uh, better uh, public health guidelines, um, including the face mask. Philip, that that is the the be- I'm not just saying this. That is the best explanation I've heard yet. <laughs> that I I am so I got goosebumps right now just listening to you say that because it, it just went right on. I wasn't trying to set you up about how data changes and you know the science changes. We know more, and so we adjust to it. But I remember these images coming out of China initially where they were showing them, you know, hitting up all these surfaces with their, their mist that was trying to sanitize everything. And and I can remember in the hospital going, um, you know, back and forth constantly along with everyone where we we're cleaning all the surfaces everywhere and trying. Now we still clean a lot of surfaces and, and try to, you know, keep everything as clean as we can. But yes, that, that emphasis has changed. And, and I guess that my, my little soapbox here is I wish, you know, many things, but I wish there would have been a slightly different exchange of information and communication on certain levels when it has come to explaining the virus and how we understand it, how it's um, being, you know, transmitted, how, you know, what the difference is between someone who is infected versus a carrier with the asymptomatic, you know, cases and all those things. And I, man, I wish I would have had you saying that on TV to the entire world, honestly, because that's just such a great explanation in my mind. Um, so I, I really appreciate you saying that. That's, that's made my whole night. I tell you, that's awesome. So what else, Yvonne? What do you think? Yeah, and... Like, well, uh, two things. The first thing I wanted to talk about, like how you said, uh, there is no proper explanation. It still amazes me to see uh, news articles published that misrepresent quarantine and isolation uh, and case and contact. Uh, Like quarantine and isolation are so interchangeably used. We did that until March with the health department. But or until April, but once May, we had more uh, uh, more definitions in place, more understanding, and uh, uh, people who are infected are in isolation. People who are exposed are in quarantine. And but people seem to use this interchangeably. Uh, even some of the publications that I saw in the news, and it's like, okay, that's not how you do it because. The precautions you do when you are isolating are different than when you are quarantining. Uh, And then people try to apply the same things in both scenarios, which is not true. Uh, So the risk of exposure or risk of uh, infecting others is different based on your active case or you're somebody who's exposed and might develop uh, cases. So the other thing I wanted to add was... uh, adding on to this PPE conversation we had. Uh, So uh, this is coming from my occupational safety background uh, because I also research on biological safety, which is keeping 
people or researchers safe in the labs from uh, from the uh, organisms they work with so that they don't self infect themselves right uh, so in occupational safety uh, there is uh, this chart what uh, what we call as hierarchy of controls uh, which is based on the most effective uh, control to keep somebody safe uh, which is at the top of the chart of the triangle and at the bottom is the least effective control to keep somebody safe. So in occupational safety, PPE is actually the least effective control which comes at the bottom of the pyramid. You want something else that's yeah. So that's why PPE is a great thing. Mask is a great thing, but does it provide you 100% protection? No. Absolutely not, because you have to wear the right mask. You have to wear it the right way. It should be the right size, right time. Uh, and you worked in the, you work in the hospital. I worked in the hospital. And if you remember in uh, April, March, I was using N95, a medium size, even though I was fit tested for a small size because medium was the only thing that's available. So were you even wearing the right mask? Maybe yes, maybe no. Were uh, you properly trained to wear it? We are used to wearing it for a few minutes to talk to your patient or and remove it and throw it and that's the end. But now you're being asked to wear it for eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours during a shift. Now, how, how effective is that going to be? How often are you not going to just take the mask, take a sip of water and put it back? Even though you know all the precautions, but if you're being asked to do it eight hours a day, that's not going to be enough. So the focus, even though it was taken away from PPE, uh, because that's the least uh, effective measure, but there are other things. And the first one uh, in this hierarchy of chat going back is elimination. So elimination, eliminating the risk is the most effective thing and that you can do by social distancing, avoiding ex uh, gatherings and things like that. Uh, so even though they said don't use PPE, the focus has always on has been on limiting those gatherings or you know going to crowded places. Uh, so that's one thing I wanted to add. This, uh, yeah, you both, you guys. My goodness, you're you're welcome back anytime. This is this is just well, hopefully not about COVID or a pandemic <laughs> anymore because we are ready to move forward. It would be nice if that was the case, but uh, oh, that's so good. Thank you so much for that, I, both of you. This is so good. I'm not trying to wrap up at all, but that just I try as much as I can to follow this. And to read about it, and I have conversations with everybody, but I've not had conversations with people directly in your profession who are seeing it day in and day out and have a nice, calm, clear understanding of what's happening. You know, it's just, it's, it's so tense to talk about it with others. And the tension comes from, again, I think it's just misunderstanding but then also just the dire nature of it. Um, you know, misunderstandings in some cases we think are killing people um, because of not understanding what they do. And, and I love that you said that, you know, PPE is way far down on that chart when it comes to the protection. And I think what I see, and I know I've, I've heard people say very specifically when they think that masks aren't enough um, is, is kind of like they're cherry picking their data. 
um, in saying, well, a mask isn't going to protect me from everything, so why should I even wear one? You know, and they sort of uh, hang on to that idea where, you know, physical distancing, I don't even really like the term social distancing for myself. I prefer to say physical distancing. Um, social distancing just sounds more, I don't know, whatever it is. Um, don't be at a party with somebody, you know, and then you're, and then you're, you know, or don't be at the bar that's up the street from me. Um, that's the things they do there. It's amazing. But anyway, um, I, I'm sort of losing my train of thought, but, um, Philip, if you have anything else you're on your mind, you want to say, go for it. I've got some questions I want to ask you guys. I know we've got the, um, the listener feedback, but Philip, anything else you want to add at this point? I do have a specific question for you though. Oh, well, uh, I, I guess I just want to say is that uh, public health is just such an interesting field to be a part of, uh, especially now. Um, public health is one of those, uh, things that, uh, uh, when everything is going okay, um, uh, people don't even think about it. It's it's just when um, these uh, almost existential crises emerge that uh, that people begin to realize that it was always kind of like there in the background. Um, epidemiologists are always trying to study patterns of how diseases uh, uh, move, how how people become infected, how um, how health changes over time. Um, and it's just, it's just kind of interesting, I think, just how, how like in the background it is most of the time, um, except during situations like this, where, uh, suddenly, um, people will expect public health to answer the, uh, um, the, the question about COVID-19, um, immediately or as soon as possible. Um, and a lot of times when, when things are going okay, sometimes the infrastructure is, uh, is either defunded or it gets, uh, minimized to a point where, um, because it, there are a lot of resources that go into, uh, keeping, uh, uh the, the population safe in, 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 in the world and, and it's just like uh, moments like these where people realize that that infrastructure uh, needs to get supported more now, um, um, in in order to make sure that that things go back to the way they used to be. Uh, so this just uh, it, it's just a very interesting uh, uh, phenomena I think that always happens during times like these is that um, you don't realize what you have until you don't have it anymore. Um, so when you take away resources from public health or, or you um, uh, uh, allow the infrastructure to kind of like uh, diminish, uh, when, when crises do happen, uh, people expect uh, public health to, to, solve this, to, to solve the problem like right away, uh, not realizing it takes time to, to get those things back up and running again. So it's just, uh, I just think it's a very interesting uh I just think it's just an interesting phenomenon that always seems to happen during like uh, uh, worldwide pandemics such as these. Yes. Beautiful stuff. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying and in that perspective of how, um, you know, the things that we really need that keep us safe um, aren't always in the, always on the forefront of our minds. 
and 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 therefore they end up getting cut sometimes. Like, do we really need this? Aren't we really, you know, are we prepared? When the reality is, you know, where we really aren't all that prepared for it. If, if that's if I'm categorizing what you said correctly, um, something summarizing it. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and uh, gosh, I can't get movie quotes out of my head. I'm gonna go ahead and I may cut this out. <laughs> but <laughs> what, have have you seen Shaun of the Dead? Possibly the British uh, yes, zombie I... comedy. Oh yes, mm-hmm. Thank I, 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 I have seen it. Yes. I think Philip, you made me watch it, didn't you? <laughs> I did. That is such a I married moment. You made me watch it. I love that. It's it's so funny and it's yet it's so scary at the same time. It's really brilliant. <laughs> it it is. It is. It it is by far one of my favorite movies for for many aspects. It's it's almost Shakespearean, like uh, Henry the Fourth or Henry the Fifth, and the Ed character is kind of like Falstaff and. And, you know, and Sean's sort of like the, the prince that needs to become the king. And, and I, you know, I break all these things. Now, my background, I don't know, I've said this to other people, but just for you guys, um, I used to be an English teacher. I was an English major in college. Originally, that was my first degree, and I taught for a little bit. But I loved science. I loved exercise. And I ended up getting my master's in exercise science, um, physical education with the concentration areas called fitness and wellness. And then I have worked in um, workplace uh, corporate fitness and wellness for quite a long time. Did a lot of personal training, exercise testing, a lot of coaching. But then for about the last 12 years, have worked through the hospital in a couple different capacities as an exercise science person, working in rehab, then also neurodiagnostic technician doing EEGs. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I, it, I was going to do the little uh, when – when Sean's character is in the pub with everybody and he wants to quote uh, Bertram Russell and talking about, you know, the man's capacity to work together with himself is the most pertinent thing. Now I'm paraphrasing it all. And of course his girlfriend remembers, he just got that off the back of some sort of little, uh, you know, uh, saying on his beer. But uh, I mean, I mean, this is really what, what we have to do now. It's our ability to work together as uh, non-nations, you know, non-states, just people who have to, you know, really pull together, share ideas, don't be judgmental, um, don't point blame, you know, because there's plenty of blame to point, there's plenty of judgmental things to do, but the the idea is, like, where's the science going to take us, where are we going to get to this? And I didn't realize it, but I walked us into a segue for the next thing. And, and that is kind of a two-parter, uh, for both of you. And, um, we know that the vaccines, um, are getting, um, uh, approved. Um, we know that we have sort of two different types of vaccines right now, at least in the way that they are stored. Um, and also the way that they were created, whether it, you know, that we don't have to necessarily get into the, the highfalutin science when it comes to how these vaccines have been created. But I think one part of this is maybe being able to tell our, our listeners, all three of them, uh, my mom, my brother, and uh, you're all's family now. Maybe we'll, in exponential terms, we'll expand a little bit. That's great. But uh, anyway, um, let's, why don't we discuss just a tiny bit about the, vaccines and how they're safe 
um, in, in some aspects. We know a lot of people tend to believe that vaccines aren't safe. And there's a lot of trepidation now, some some indecision about if, if people even want to take the vaccine when it comes out. But and I don't think we have to go into great detail about that. So the safety of vaccines. But then the other thing is, and this is going to lead to my other comment, is how do we stop this thing? What is the, the, the thought, the plan for how to stop it? We talk about herd immunity, but really there are two parts to herd immunity. Uh, in order for that to be successful. And so I kind of want to talk about those things too. So either of you want to jump in on vaccines to start off with and maybe the safety. Um, we can certainly talk about f efficacy if we want to, but what do you guys think about that? Uh, well, uh, so I, uh, well, the big question is, are the vaccines safe? Is it too soon? Uh, have they been developed too soon, right? Uh, uh, that's something I worry too, but I did my research uh, like you should anytime there is a vaccine. Uh, you know, vaccines are not just produced and uh, sent out to people just like that. They do go through uh, different tests. The FDA, the Food and Drug Administration has to approve them uh, and uh, especially COVID-19 vaccine, I see that there was an independent study done too, and uh, they approved it. I believe it was uh, yesterday uh, that they approved it and they said it's safe. So uh, usually for a vaccine, it goes through three phases in clinical trials. Uh, the first uh, the first clinical, uh, the first phase of clinical trials is when they think there is an effective vaccine. They test in about 2,200 healthy people and uh, they see if there are any adverse side effects. And if there are none, they, then they go to phase two, wherein they uh, administer the vaccine to several hundred people, uh, volunteers, and then uh, if, if there is not much adverse effects and and if if the vaccine is uh, acting the way it should, then they go to the third and final phase of clinical study, wherein they administer the vaccine to thousands of people. Uh, I don't know what uh, the reports are from each uh, company that developed the vaccine, but I know, I believe uh, Pfizer today published their uh, uh, reports from the uh, phase three clinical uh, studies. So all this data is even available for us. If you're concerned about vaccine, I would suggest Read, read literature. Don't look at social media. Don't don't listen to what people are saying. Don't watch just the news. Read scientific literature. It may be difficult to read uh, scientific literature if you're not into science. Uh, they are not fun reading, uh, but but that's the best way. If you have concerns and questions, don't don't look at social media. It's not going to answer anything uh, accurate, right? Yes, yes. And I, I'm going to so, interrupt just for one little second. I have found something that, as far as I can tell, um, is quite good, quite thorough, dynamic, and on a level that a lot of people should be able to follow it if they have just a tiny bit of science background. I can't say no science background, but I still think some parts of you can do the name is going to be a little off-putting um not that it's bad but it's called ninja nerd science or ninja as in ninjas n-i-n-j-a or n-i-n yeah j-a 
um, or Ninja Nerd Medicine. And it is um, uh, a physician's assistant. So this is someone who has a license um, to do what they do, who I believe um, has a passion for teaching and does do some teaching in his job now. And he has shot with his crew of a nurse, a former science teacher, and a physical therapist um, close to 300 videos all to prepare physicians' assistants for their exams and their topics. And he has done one now about COVID-19, the vaccines, and he breaks down the three different phases of the clinical trials and talks about the animals that um, were probably tested in the first part with mice, and then they moved on to different phases. And that's one that, I, it, it to me, it passes all the sniff tests in that it's not political, it's it's just good science. Um, I even notice after I've watched a few more of his videos on other topics, if he makes a mistake, they will pause the video, show a placard um, that just, and it usually it's just um, mentioning a different um, element to something that he's talked about as on a on a biochemical um, you know standpoint. It's not like a major error. That he makes, but anyway, for those out there who might want to see something, it's it's it, I see it as a good resource. It's something I would have, have you guys may want to check out just to see. But it's called Ninja Nerd Science. And sorry to interrupt you, Cervantino, but that that just popped into my head that yeah. I've I've been the, walking that, around that the clinic. Uh, yeah, I will definitely check it out. Uh, but you're right. Uh, just listen to good science. If somebody has questions, I mean, even I do, like a vaccine within a year is actually a surprising thing. Is it an achievement? Is it something you have to be scared about? Uh, but listen to good science, listen to people you trust, listen to the experts, doctors, scientists, researchers. Uh, and uh, I did my little research and I spoke to my uh People I trust, right? Doctors and researchers and everybody said, take a vaccine because it might be available soon. Uh, my sister is a physical therapist. She works in a long-term facility. She will probably be the first one in our household to get it. So we are actually looking forward to it because that means at least one person in the house is immune and that's less risk to everybody else. Uh, so uh, so I think it's a good thing. Uh, and that's one step to go forward, vaccines and uh, continue, uh, continue being careful, physical distancing, hand hygiene, uh, mask, be careful, uh, be more aware of yourself, any symptoms that you uh, experience be more careful now this is something you have to do even after the vaccine for a few months uh, because just because you took a vaccine doesn't mean you're 100% safe we still have uh, it's still going to take a while to come back to uh, normal like before but the good news is we have a new normal now uh, like there are so many things we adapted. I know it's not the best uh, situation that we are living in, but we are going in the right direction. So, right, right, exactly, exactly. So, Philip, where I, I know we keep hearing there's potentially going to be thousands of more deaths in the United States. Um, and, and I'm assuming this is because of some epidemiological models. 
um, where we're, we're seeing, um, you know, the spread and, and how people aren't protected or, you know, infection rates, all those types of things. Um, have you heard some science or, or, and, or, or you guys doing some science, um, related to that in where we think the numbers may take us, or I don't know if it has to be about numbers, but, um, are you seeing a light at the end of the tunnel? And again, is it based on, um, vaccine and herd immunity? Because from what I understand of herd immunity, where people, I think, misunderstood this initially was that they thought um, they would just focus on one part of herd immunity, which was infection. And then if you survived it, you had antibodies then to protect yourself and then protect you from infecting other people. And so there was this thought that people just needed to let themselves be infected so that we could advance this herd immunity idea. Now, my understanding is that's really just one part of it that happens as by, by way of almost happenstance. It's not something that we necessarily want to have happen. Um, whereas we could have good, good health practices that we still have to do, as you mentioned, Savarjana, of washing hands and wearing, you know, masks and, and being careful even after we get the vaccines. So Phil, where does all this play out for you um, with either herd immunity, vaccine, the model numbers? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, I think the, um, the misinterpretation of um, herd immunity being applied uh, or being acquired through uh, infection of the general populace. Um, I have to admit that that struck me as uh, very Darwinian in the most frightening manner. <laughs> Take the vaccine. Uh, you're not just making a personal choice for yourself. You're also choosing for other people around you who uh, may become exposed uh, to COVID-19. Uh, so it is an, it is important to to stress the the importance of vaccination um, against COVID nineteen. Um, and while I'm sure there are concerns uh, uh, that the the process of making the vaccine uh, was expedited, um, they are um, the the FDA has been very transparent in how it's going through its trials and. Um, it, it, it's very easy to look up um, um, how how those trials are being conducted, and they are currently, uh, as, as my wife said, they are in the phase three uh, trials right now for the uh, the new vaccine. So uh, that that does present a very real uh, light at the end of this uh, uh, dark tunnel that we're in. Um, but the numbers right now do seem to suggest uh, that without the vaccine, things things are actually going to be getting much worse as the uh, the winter season uh, continues on. Uh, today actually uh, set the record for the most uh, COVID nineteen deaths at uh, uh, surpassing thirty three hundred uh, in one day. Um, so. Um, Unless more uh, unless more precautions are being taken to social distance, uh, to maintain a good hand hygiene, um, and wearing face masks uh, all together, uh, 
unless more precautions are being taken uh, to uh, to protect oneself from COVID nineteen, uh, those those mortality numbers are going to continue to rise. Um, but the vaccine does present a uh, a turnaround um, according mm-hmm. to the data. If once it's uh, once it becomes more widely available, awesome. I mean, not not awesome that it's happening, but uh, just love love your your responses from both of you. Um, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. I'm just going to keep thinking about this so much. This is just great stuff. Um, did you guys know your rock stars tonight for me? So that's God telling you. So much. You're welcome. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to talk about it. Yeah. Good, good. I mean, I. I sort of um, had hinted and think and thought the way we would have this conversation was, you know, if we were at a dinner party and someone asked you about COVID-19 and what you're doing in your job, we'd sort of have that conversation and, and that would be sort of general. And then the second part of it would be, well, if you guys were giving a lecture somewhere at a conference and then there were, um, you know, what you gave your presentation and then there were questions thereafter. And I'm kind of at that point now with what we're doing. And I appreciate you guys going with me as long as you have been. I mean, this is all fantastic. I think I told you just be half an hour. I knew I was lying when I told you that. I, hate <laughs> I, to admit okay. it. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. But um, the, the, uh, the one thing I wanted to do, which I know has come up in various um, discussions, I have a Facebook group site. Um, where we will occasionally say things about COVID-19 or, you know, the politics that are going on at the time. And one of the conversations that I've seen, not necessarily on that site, but has been this discussion about um, what truly constitutes a, a technical uh, death from COVID-19. And, and then this idea that seems to have floated around for a while that if people had comorbidities, um, that they were incorrectly being labeled as being a COVID-19 death because of the degree of, the, of what they had for these comorbidities. Have you guys experienced these conversations? Have they come up at all? Is it something that, so I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Has, 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 has that topic come up for you guys at all? Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, I have uh, read that in social media, and my uh, my sister works in a long term facility, and, uh, and we talk about how uh, her uh, patients or the residents might be at higher risk, right? Uh, now, when it comes to how people are being labeled, like uh, what the cause of the death is, uh, if they're dying, I don't exactly know all that. But one one theory that I have is. People have comorbidities. People have, uh, there are so many people that are diabetic or have high blood pressure or have cancer or, or have other issues. But that doesn't mean you will get infected with a new virus and you will die the next day, right? I mean, diabetes didn't do that to you. The new virus or the new infection and your body reacting it to it did it. Uh, so just saying... Uh, just assuming anyone who died of COVID-19 was presumably a sick person with existing conditions, I think is not the right thing to say. Uh, I mean, most of us have something or the other after you 
you know, as you said, start getting older. It could be allergies, it could be diabetes, it could be you could be obese. Or there are so many things, but those can't can't lead to death. So uh, COVID nineteen, uh, I believe, possibly uh, acts as a catalyst for people who have pre existing conditions. Uh, but the other thing uh, I have noticed from my personal experience uh, is uh, I have uh, had few acquaintances and relatives in India that died of COVID-19. Now, at least few people that I know were in their 30s, no pre-existing conditions. Mm. There is no reason that they should have died in a week or two after diagnosis. So how do you explain that? So, Right, right. Um, Where, where's your science there? Other than yeah. other than I think some people end up being skeptical and think, well, those people must have had something that is undetected. And and that's why, you know, they yeah. just they go to another yeah. level of um, where it's completely unable to be proven. <laughs> and, and they go there where granted it's, you know, the the, you know, observational mind can say, yes, this is someone who clearly is very fit. And does not have these pre-existing conditions, yet they still die from it. Where there is someone else who is unfit, um, has every single comorbidity there is, and the the most that they get might be um, a sniffle here and there. When we find out that it's it is such a bizarrely dynamic disease, you know that has like let's just say a multiplicity of possibilities of who it can affect and what it can do to people blows my mind. And, and I guess what I think of, um, and I'll get to your thoughts too on this fellow, but what I just think of when you talk about comorbidities, I just don't think the general public was ready to understand that term, um, being thrown around. And I mean, that just like you said, this, this is something, you know, death rarely, if ever occurs in a vacuum. Um, especially if it's a hospital patient who has not been in a significant trauma um, that has caused their death. Um, there's typically some other factor that has led to um, why they are, um, you know, expiring. And so, Philip, any thoughts more about um, either comorbidities or, or when um, people have misconceptions about some of the, some of the information and data? When, uh, when, when people uh, say that, uh, oh, um, somebody had uh, a comorbidity and that's the reason that uh, uh, they passed away and it wasn't due to the COVID-19, um, it's just kind of like, um, uh, it's like, it's like trying to it's like trying to prove something that didn't happen. Like, how do you do that? <laughs> um, so it's kind of like, there are so many cases of people who, who never had any observable uh, comorbidity or pre-existing condition who their lungs have failed and uh, their bodies gave up uh, due to COVID-19. And, um, you can't you can't uh you can't base those on uh some pre existing condition uh or a comorbidity um, every single person has i speak to a lot of uh, positive cases uh 
and all of them have different symptoms, uh, different uh, uh, experiences with COVID. Um, some of them uh, have recovered right away. Some some of them have been asymptomatic. Um, but every every person is different, and it's just uh, our biological makeup. Sometimes is it's hard to predict exactly how COVID nineteen is going to uh, react with the person once it uh, once it takes over. Um, and you can't just uh, dismiss that uh, uh, a person's uh, death just because uh, they they had some other diseases also like diabetes or. Um, or a previous lung uh, lung comorbidity like emphysema or uh, asthma even, uh, or a heart condition. Um, so many people who who would be deemed healthy who who fall victim to the COVID nineteen. So um, it's it's just one of those things that's very hard to uh, understand the. Uh, the reason why people just want to uh, uh, dismiss a death as not being attributed to COVID-19 uh, just because there happened to be another uh, another uh, illness or infection or pre-existing condition present at that time. And, and it's just like what, it's just like what you said, uh, no, no death ever happens in the vacuum. There's always, there's always something. Right. Right. It, you know, rarely, if ever, unless it's trauma, is there going to be some, you know, uh, and, and there's all kinds of, uh, coarse ways, you know, to think about it. It's like, well, th this person was 700 pounds, but they, you know, died by gunshot and well, okay. <laughs> you know, this, this is, yeah, a, it's a not obesity, it's gunshot. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's just, there you go. Or, you know, so, and uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, to, uh, you talk about the the existential nature of this crisis and and thinking about it philosophically, and you know there it, it's it's not too soon to speculate why so many of these perspectives are out there and um, potentially how those now are affecting choices that we make. I think that's really the most important part is. You know, how do you think about this and what choice does you make? Do, does it cause you to make? Um, but it, it's just the way it is. And I think even though this has been around almost for a year, I think it's still too soon for for us to understand things like, you know, why is it still affecting such a wide variety of people? And 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 we don't have all the data about this wide variety of people. I mean, how many people are truly been asymptomatic? Well, we don't know because we can't test them all um, to find out who are, who is asymptomatic. Right. So, I mean, and, and how that affects everything. Um, I, I'm not trying to put words in your all's mouth. You can please disagree with me or, or whatever. You're at least nodding your heads. So I'm, I'm thinking you're under, you're agreeing with me. So um, I, I, uh, yeah, I just, I, in in doing this particular podcast, it's been something as 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 a bit of a pet project for me um, and my co-host Bradley, who would be here with us, everybody. But my connection in order to split my lines so that I can have um, people on different um, microphones and 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 wires, so to speak, 
Um, uh, I don't, I can't bring him into the conversation. Otherwise he'd be joining us here. But, um, you know, both of us just, we, we see an emphasis from whatever far side of somebody's political beliefs. We, we see that bias that people can have and how that may affect their decisions. And, and we just want to try to bring everybody, I'm making a sign here with my hands in, you know, closer together, bring everybody a little more into the middle and, and hopefully have some, some thoughts where we agree on more information than we would disagree on information and be so polar, you know, opposite, so to speak. So that's, that's sort of my, you know, my plug for us to do that. Now, let me go ahead and say to everybody um, that our um, listener who has d- done a phone call to us is actually someone who I'm going to interview in a few weeks. And she is actually the first person um, who has a, um, let's, uh, a channel on television that she puts out through the Internet and uh, has a program, and it is called Truth or Politics. And she um, has also written a book about her experiences working in the military and, um, and things that she saw and the, the things that she had to deal with in the government and politics. And we'll be covering all those things. But her name is Darlene Price. Um, she has been doing this for 10 years. And she lives in, uh, I believe the statistics that I've seen, is one of the... Um, what I want to say the least or the, the less economically advantaged counties in all of Kentucky. And just recently, I believe I saw that it is the least um, uh, economically advantaged County in all of the United States. And she has though been a champion of the quote unquote, the truth and, and seeing where that um, falls within her county and her state and how politics involved with that. So um, I asked her to possibly to, to join in and she did. And um, so we're going to play um, that um, audio and then we'll have some reactions to that. And uh, so we'll get that going here in just a second. coming out of uh, Robert and the folks over in Louisville. Anyways, well, we're going to cover Monday on our show, and you're welcome to come over on our show as well. So we're going to have somebody from the health department and, and medical industry on the COVID uh, situation here in Kentucky and surrounding areas. Our doctors locally and our ARPNs are absolutely overwhelmed. Um, the testing is especially this rapid testing is just not as accurate as, as it needs to be. Um, I was tested twice within an hour and got two different results within an hour. And and our, our doctors in the health department are taking a lot of heat for this. And they did not invent this test. So I want to kind of stick up for them. Our doctors and our ARPNs are, are, are dealing with the hand they were dealt with and, and doing the best that they can. So. Um, the CDC, whoever came up with these tests, the nasal test seems to be a little bit more accurate, but it cannot test for antibodies. And 
I just think that's crazy. The most accurate test, the nasal test, they don't test for antibodies. And I just, I just think that that's, I don't understand that. And, um, but anyways, I just want to say our Truth of Politics over in Eastern Kentucky, we're going to be live on Facebook Monday night at uh, 6 o'clock, and it is our 10-year anniversary show. We've been on the air on television and on radio and also on uh, Facebook Live for 10 years, and we want to invite you guys all to come over and watch the show. And I hope somebody on this show, if there's some doctors or nurses out there, can uh, explain this because I'm telling you the testing is not what I thought it would be, especially the rapid testing. And I, I just hope folks out there, you need to give your healthcare workers, your doctors, and the health department a break because, again, they did not invent these tests. Um, they're doing the best they can with what they have. And the contact tracing is extremely difficult when you're testing, especially the rapid tests are not as accurate as they, in my humble opinion, as they should be. So that's my question slash comment, whatever. And, uh, again, kudos to Truth of Politics. You guys are doing a great job over there, and we, we, we talk about your show on our show all the time. So keep up the good work. Thanks. Okay. All right. So that was Darlene Price. Um, who um, gave us that talk. Oh, I just wanted to say congratulations for the 10-year anniversary for uh, Twitter politics uh, to Darlene. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And, you know, yeah, ten- we we were searching for a name for the podcast and a name for the, the Facebook website. And we had truth in politics. That was already taken. We had um, facts and politics. That was already taken. You know, so we just landed on truth or politics. We kind of liked the ring of it. We went back and forth a number of times. And um, I'm getting ready to put it on a Facebook site. And then it's like, Houston, we have a problem. Here we go. Somebody else has that name already. And, and we had already started making our banners. We had all the things going. We thought we had it all set to, to go with this. And I think I'd already gotten together a, um, a Google, you know, email and whatever else it was. And I just thought to myself, you know what, I'm just going to call these people. Um, we, we could see them on Facebook and I thought, I'm just going to call them and ask if they think it's okay. If we have this podcast that uses the same name that they do. And because what what I could tell was they don't have a podcast. They've got all these other types of things. So I called up Darlene and um, left her a message and or I gave her a Facebook message. I can't remember which one it was. It was like a text and Facebook. She immediately responded back with, yeah, it works for me. Kind of like, yeah, sure, you can do it, you idiot. (laughs) I want you to do whatever you want to do. And and really, that's that's her her perspective is she wants this to be everywhere that it can be so we can get a good science, good uh, conversation, you know, bias-free information out to people. And uh, so she's just a wonderful person. So I'm so happy that um, she agreed for us to be able to do that. She's now joined in the conversation with us. And I think she, she brought up some really good points in there. Um, Darlene has an investigator background working with military police. She really is super thorough in everything that she does from what I've read in her book and what I've heard her talk about on her um, show. So guys, what do you think about the first one that where she mentioned that she had two tests done on her and she had different results? 
Um, to me, I have a feeling about why that might be, but I'm going to turn to you guys, the professionals. What do we think might be going on there if she had two different results? Sort of back to back. Let's see. Well, uh, there are um, there are three available uh, uh, tests uh, that you can that you can take. Uh, the first is a molecular test, also known as a PCR test. Uh, the second is an antigen test, um, and the third is a antibody t- test. So the the first two tests, the uh, molecular uh, PCR test and the uh, antigen test. Uh, look at specific kind of proteins to uh, determine if someone has COVID-19 now. And the, the third test is the antibody test. And the uh, the third one uh, is used to verify if somebody had COVID-19 in the past, uh, a long time ago, because it's looking for the, the body's uh, uh, a person's antibodies uh, against COVID-19, which they would have developed when they were sick uh, uh, weeks ago. But the first two are diagnostic tests, uh, uh, looking at specific proteins to verify if if someone has COVID-19 or not. Um, so uh, in regards to how accurate uh, the, the test results are, um, it's it's pretty much a um, given that the um, uh, there is a difference in the sensitivity of the uh, two tests. Uh, so sensitivity is how many uh, uh, how many positives positive test results are actually really positive test results. Um, and the the first test, the, the PCR test, has a very high uh, sensitivity. So that means that it, if it gives you a, a positive test result, uh, there's a very, very high probability that that's very accurate and, and, and you are positive for COVID-19. But it takes uh, one to three days in order to get the results back, uh, depending on how busy the uh, the lab center is. So the, the second test is the antigen test. And that's also known as the uh, the rapid test, uh, which you can get the results in 15 minutes. Now, the sensitivity on that test is actually uh, a bit lower than um, than on uh, uh, the PCR tests. Um, so, if there is ever a a negative test result for an antigen test. Uh, then that sample is then taken to get a normal PCR test, which takes longer to do. Uh, it may have taken a day. So in regards to her question, uh, it is possible that it sounds like uh, uh, there was a, um, a rapid test performed, uh, 15 minutes, and it said that it was positive. But maybe due to an irregularity uh, or maybe the the person taking the test just wanted to be sure uh, and they wanted to do the, the molecular test. So they did the antigen test. Uh, it came out false, I believe, right? That was the result. Well, that, that, that part I never heard. I'm not sure um, what the actual result was other than she said she had two different results. That's the okay. way that I remember it being said. Okay. So I'm not 100% certain. You would think it's, well, why would you take a second test other than what okay. you're saying as a possible scenario? Hey, I just want to be sure. 
or if it's maybe it came out positive the first time they did it the second time it was negative. You know, I'm not, I'm not really sure, you know, what, what that was, but you're right. And, and that I I love that you had said, right. There are two different types of tests. The, you you said the PCR, is that correct? Yeah. Uh, The molecular test is also known as the PCR test. Okay. And then of course, then the rapid test. And, uh, Mm -hmm. that, that makes complete sense that there might be a different sensitivity level on something that is so rapid. It's 15 minutes long to get the results. So, um, just to be sure if there is ever a, uh, a negative result on an antigen, they will automatically go and do a PCR test also, uh, because of the, the high sensitivity of that test to verify that it's correct. And then they go by whatever the second result is, uh, just as a precaution. Okay. Okay. Good stuff. And just to add, yeah, and just to add a few more points, uh, somebody can get two tests, same type of tests within an hour and still get different results. And that could be because of different things, right? Uh, The first one is not all tests are 100% reliable. Uh, So the test might miss something the first time and might catch something the second time. That could be happening. And then it also depends on the person who is testing, uh, how trained they are, or there could be human error, which is which can happen all the time. And the sample might be contaminated, uh, again, which is uh, uh, an issue that could happen, especially now when everyone is overworked or doing the same tests again and again in their practice. So uh, that, that could happen. And like Philip said, uh, the sensitivity uh, of these two tests this is different. A molecular or a test, uh, which is most usually PCR, is higher, uh, is more sensitive. Uh, and if it's positive, it's uh, pretty much positive. Whereas uh, an antigen test, the result can come back negative. But if somebody is showing symptoms, you want to go ahead and get a PCR to be, to be more certain that they are uh, not false negative. That's something we want to avoid. Right. Uh, Right. Uh, false positive is okay because uh, at the end you're taking extra precautions. But if you're false negative, you're uh, you're thinking you're negative, but you're going out in public and spreading, right? Exactly. So that's why PCR is more uh, reliable, I think. Uh, but antigen are quick, they are rapid, they are more easily accessible to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. That's one reason we have different tests. Sure. And the other thing, uh, the other thing is, uh, there may not be enough viral RNA in a person's body for mm-hmm. the test to pick up. So if you're testing someone in the morning and maybe there there isn't enough produced, or so the test didn't pick it up. Maybe when they did it again, the test picked it picked it up. So that could be uh, happening. It depends on the stage of infection. Uh, some people think, like I have spoken to so many people, uh, even dentists and medical students included, who said, I got a negative test. I'm good. I'm going out uh, for a vacation or something. And we're like, no. Uh, this test is testing at a specific point of time. P- people do misinterpret the test results a lot. It's always good to, uh, you know, a false positive is better than a false negative. So when somebody is false positive, uh, we will end up doing extra precautions because we assume they are positive. Whereas if somebody is false negative, we are giving that uh, false 
uh, false security that, okay, you're negative, you can go out in public, but then they might end up uh, in being infectious and spreading the disease. Uh, so with an antigen test, with a rapid test, there is a higher chance of getting a false uh, negative or getting that false security. To so avoid that if somebody has symptoms and have a false, uh, uh, has a false negative with a rapid test, uh, the doctors ask them to go ahead and get a PCR test to be doubly sure. So that's the reason sometimes people might get different results and that might be confusing to the general public or even or even to people with science background because this is more biochemical, this is more, you know, testing stuff. Um, so yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention was how people misinterpret the test results. Some uh, like if somebody gets a negative test, they assume they are safe from infection, uh, but that's not true. Somebody might be having an active infection, but not enough viral uh, material, genetic material in their body for the test to pick it up. So just because you got a negative test, you're not safe that day. That doesn't give you permission to go out and go to a party. Uh, I have, I have spoken to dental students or students with medical background in the last few months who assumed that since they got a negative test, they are they don't have to quarantine or they don't have to be careful because it's negative. Um, one example I can give is, is these tests are not like a blood test. If you get if you get a blood test and if your test is AB positive, it's AB positive for the rest of your life. Whereas if you get a negative test on a COVID, that doesn't mean you're negative for the rest of your life. That can change the next day. That depends on the virus, uh, like how it replicates in your body and how your body deals with all that. So yeah, there is so much misinformation about test results, uh, but I would say that testing is a good thing. Test Having uh, tests available to us is, is a really a good thing, but that doesn't, give us permission to relax on the measures we need to take. Like continue doing all the uh, safe um, safety precautions that the CDC guidelines, CDC is telling us to do until they ask us, you don't have to do. So, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha, fantastic. Oh, this is such good stuff, guys. Um, so then I think the other part about her uh, questions was asking why there wasn't antibodies um, tested for also. Now, maybe she understood enough to know that that would be a separate type of test um, that she would get. And, and I think the scenario, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but typically you're going to get that antibody test um, when you think you have had it and then your body has developed these antibodies to fight it off and, you know, in, in a type of its own immunity. Um, that's, that's really why we do antibody tests to begin with, correct? Maybe you were asymptomatic and then you want to have this test or you actually felt like you might've had some symptoms, you're over it and now you're being tested. Isn't that pretty much the only time we try to do those antibody tests? Uh, yes. So the, uh, the antibody test uh, is uh, is a test to determine whether or not uh, you had the infection uh, sometime in the past, either a couple of weeks or maybe a month in the past. If you ever had symptoms and and you want to make sure that uh, you had uh, uh, 
you want to you want you want to know if you if your body is uh, generating the antibodies against uh, against the previous COVID nineteen infection, uh, then you would do an antibody test. So antibody tests are not uh, uh, diagnostic of uh, current infection, but of uh, previous uh, infection in the past. Correct, correct. Uh, and I believe uh, they do an antibody test 14 days after uh, the uh, in initial infection. Mm. Uh, that's when you uh, your antibody test will be able to detect antibodies that your uh, body uh, produced or not. Uh, I think one co question Darlene had was, why can't we test for antibodies through a nasal swab? Mm. Uh, so uh, the, the first, uh, the diagnostic test, the molecular and antigen test are usually performed through a nasopharyngeal route where they stick a swab inside your nose or sometimes uh, inside your mouth. Uh, they take a swab and check for uh, genetic material or viral proteins and see if there's a current infection. Whereas with the, uh, with the antibody test, you're looking for antibodies in your blood. So that's the reason they have mm -hmm. to do a blood test for antibody uh, testing. And I don't think there are as many antibody tests available as diagnostic tests are. That's why uh, the number of people that are able to get this antibody test is limited. Uh, right now, uh, I remember getting one in uh, May, I think, when I was working at Norton Hospital to see if there was a past infection. Uh, but we don't have as many, so it, it helps in surveillance and looking at how many people might have been exposed like, uh, to the infection and had an asymptomatic uh, infection, right? That's one reason uh, for using antibody tests. There's one other reason for using antibody tests. If, uh, if, the, if the test is able to detect antibodies in somebody's uh, blood or plasma, it's, it's called as convalescent plasma. And it has these immune antibodies, which can help fight the COVID infection. Now, somebody who tests positive on antibody test is a good candidate to donate plasma that could be used for somebody who is having a severe infection and who needs help. Um, uh, so, right, I do, do, yeah, I remember that topic coming up initially when they were looking for treatments. You know, not necessarily cures. Um, I will apologize to everybody right now because I think my cat has finally had it and it is now rubbing against my equipment and causing static. So wonderful. I, I never did explain to you guys why I might keep like moving my body back and forth. It's not because I either have a tick, you know, or whatever, but it's because I have a cat who I, I'm not going to lock up when I'm doing these things. So anyway, but yeah, I do remember that term about uh, convalescent plasma and, uh, you know, how it can be potentially used to help um, uh, treat uh, COVID-19. And I think there was some initial um, good uh, results in some cases with that. Um, oh, this is all such good stuff, guys. Okay, we're going to take a little break here just for a second, and, and then we'll come back. So all of those are fantastic comments. We've been able to cover so many things. 
I think the only thing that we haven't done that I would be remiss if we didn't mention it is what are you guys telling people in the field when they have a positive test? What has to happen? Not that they have to do anything necessarily. Um, what what has to happen in order for them to be around their loved ones and and regain you know contact with people in a, in a safe way? What what is if, if you're doing your contact tracing or just uh, you tell people that way or you do it other standpoints if you know folks and they need they ask you hey what am I supposed to do? What can we tell the listeners is um, the the best recommendation at this point based on science and everything else? Well, uh, when I uh, when I speak the the positive cases um, and I, I inform them that they uh, that they need to stay isolated for. Uh, at least uh, 10 days uh, based on when uh, they either first experienced symptoms or if they never had symptoms that were asymptomatic, then it's based on uh, the date that they had their uh, uh, the sample taken for their test, for their COVID test. So when I, ex- when I explain to people uh, the guidelines they need to follow for isolation, uh, I, I just explained that they... Uh, um, that they try to stay in their room, um, uh, preferably uh, with the, with their own uh, their own room and their own bathroom, um, and I uh, let them know that they uh, should try to uh, keep uh, keep uh, separated from any other family members who uh, who also need to stay quarantined also. Um, and I, and they just updated the, um, the quarantine guidelines for, for those from, from two weeks to, uh, to 10 days now, but they need to stay at home also, uh, quarantined, hopefully separately also, uh, any, any other family members. And, um, uh, I let them know that if there's any, uh, there are any, uh, essentials that are required, uh, uh, there are. Our services that the health department does offer to uh, to, to, to try to help with uh, delivering uh, goods to uh, uh, people's houses if if they require any um, any supplies or any pharmaceuticals, uh, and uh, just to let them know that uh, um, uh, they need to just monitor their their condition uh, after. After day after ten days, uh, uh, we contact them again just to verify how they're doing. Uh, if they if they've been free of any like any heavy symptoms for the last three days, uh, then we can we can inform them that their isolation is is complete. Awesome. Anything else to add yeah. there? Uh... Oh, just to, yeah, just to add uh, some yeah. So just to add uh, what Philip said or. Just to rephrase it, uh, basically, uh, basically people who test positive, we call them as cases in the field, and they isolate. That is, they, they stay, they they isolate from everybody else in the house. Stay in a separate room if possible. Uh, use a separate bathroom. Uh, don't don't hang around in the kitchen or common areas. And uh, people who are exposed, we call them contacts. Uh, and they quarantine. That is, they stay in the house. They don't go out to. Uh, they go don't go out in the public, but they stay in the house. Now they can hang around their family, uh, because at this point we don't think they are infected. 
so they can hang around their family, but not around somebody who is vulnerable, like elderly uh, family members or uh, or a family member with a uh, severe illness, uh, like cancer or or who's immunocompromised, but they can stay home and monitor for symptoms. And if they start uh, experiencing any symptoms, even sniffles, even a cold, a minor cough, since uh, since they have been exposed, we would want them to start isolating immediately and stay separated from family. Now, in case a contact does end up being positive, now their, their contacts are limited to their household members and not the general public. So, yeah, I, and the other guidelines we tell them is uh, the same thing. Wear a mask, uh, uh, sanitize uh, common touch areas in the house if you're, uh, you know, if you're positive. And even after your infection uh, period has passed, be careful when you go out in the public. Hopefully there is no reinfection, but we do want people to be careful until we know more. Uh, so just because you got an infection and you're done, it's not over. Be careful. And in case you test positive, uh, don't worry, don't freak out. The doctors know more. Science is advancing. We know more about the disease. So there is treatment. There is better treatment available. So don't freak out if you test positive. Uh, but if you don't test positive, don't relax. Continue being careful. So Awesome. Great stuff. Um, I just want to be cheerleaders for you guys. This is just so good. Uh, Philip, any any last thoughts? Um, during these times, to um, uh, to go back to uh, uh, Henry the Fourth and Falstaff, uh, the uh, uh, the better part of valor is discretion. So uh, this is a time for just staying, trying to keep as safe as possible, and and uh, uh, try to uh, make the best of things as. Uh, and and see like how how things turn out once uh, once the vaccine becomes more widely available uh, to the public. Uh, hopefully, things things will turn around and there will be that uh, that light at the end of the tunnel. Great stuff, great stuff. Yeah, I, I, you you will always get me with a little uh, Shakespeare quote. That that's for sure. And now I'm just noticing the. It looks like do you have a Shroot Farms? Uh, shirt on there is that is that a, a oh, office? It, it, yes, call, it is. Call up it's, there? A, it's a gift from my uh, from my wife. Yes. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. Uh, that's uh, that show. I, I didn't watch tons of it, but that has come up multiple times at work, where pe people want to <laughs> ask me, hey, "Do I know?" Because I I quote so many shows so often ad nauseum. And uh, they've brought up the office sometimes. I'm like, yeah, I I, I know of it. I, I've certainly seen some stuff. But I was just reading your shirt. I was like, oh my gosh, he's got a Shroot Farm shirt on. Well, this is good, <laughs> good stuff. Okay, well, guys, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I am just thrilled uh, to do this. This, you know, Bradley and I want to be able to talk um, together. Uh, at the same time, though, it's it's so challenging to try to be our own experts um, ourselves. And this is just a big part of what I hope this podcast becomes is being able to put experts on here. And we have these conversations and um, and I think you guys did a fantastic job. And to our listeners, 
Um, remember that you can still give us a call and you can um, give us some feedback even after this podcast is over. But uh, you can give us a call. You can make comments on the Facebook website. If you want to continue this conversation, ask some questions, and I can get these questions to these guys, and maybe we can see what we do, have a part two on here. I think where we might land, guys, after some time on this is post-COVID syndrome, if it isn't being called that yet. Um, I, I think there's so many people that now I'm seeing, I saw the Anderson Cooper 60 minutes special that was on just recently about a couple of people who had post COVID syndrome and are dealing with that so much. And, and I, I apologize. I'm not sure if it's even called that, but it's this, it's this recovery that people have where they, um, are still very, very lethargic, still have, um, severe symptoms of, um, respiratory distress, um, you know, their energy levels. And, and just like we said, some of these people, um, who get this, who do not have comorbidities, um, get the disease might even pass away from it. Um, certainly there's been, there have been some high profile pe profile people who that has happened to. Um, but in, in this particular case, in the Anderson Cooper show on 60 minutes, there were two people. One was a personal trainer who was super fit, the other was a multiple marathon runner who competed in some of the toughest marathons, Boston, um, New York, was training for London. Um, and they came down with it, and their life has been drastically changed from that. And um, wishing all good thoughts to everybody out there who's listening to this, who have lost family members. Uh, I Really, I ache inside for you. Um, if that has happened to you, um, if you've come down with this or you know people have come down with this and have struggled with their recovery, um, certainly that's, you know, something we all hope that um, you can get through those things. And I just wanted to say, if you guys didn't know this, there is an anchor from um, a news anchor from Wave 3, um, Lauren Jones, who has been documenting her um struggles with it. I think she's on day 26 or 27 now, um, something like that since she contracted it. And, um, and, and she certainly does not have, um, the active virus anymore as far as her testing goes, but her recovery is long and painful. And, uh, and that's something else that, um, is of note here. And, and I'm so glad that some people are able to document this and let everybody else know about it. Um, you know, wishing all good thoughts for her and everybody else that I'm um, still dealing with this. So thank you once again, uh, the two of you for being part of this with me. Uh, I can't thank you enough. It's just fantastic. And, uh, Philip, be careful. I'll be sending you, um, Sean of the dead quotes here pretty soon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, awesome. Okay. Th thank you so much. Th th thank you so much for having us. Well, thank you so much. It was fun. And I think we'll leave it with um, our little tagline. And that is what we say is that uh, in the world of politics, um, there are two sides to every story. Um, there is your side of the story. There is somebody else's side of the story. And somewhere in the middle, we think, lies the truth. So thanks again for listening, everybody. Um, give us some comments, and we will talk to you again another time.
told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. I'm not going to continue trying to respond to these re repetitions of the falsehoods that have already been stated here. Read my lips. No new taxes. Our politics seems more vulnerable to conspiracy theories and outright fabrication. We choose truth over facts. Some of the most dishonest people in media are the so-called fact checkers. We will keep this promise to the American people. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor, period. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan, period. They're just totally distorting everything possible concerning the facts.